Hello, everyone. This is Alyssa Smith, one of the hosts of ENT in a Nutshell. If you've enjoyed listening, please consider taking a second to rate and review this podcast. And now, on to the episode. Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today we are joined by rhinologist and skull base surgeon, Dr. Garrett Choby, and we'll be discussing nasal obstruction. Dr. Choby, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate the invitation. Dr. Choby, this is a pretty uh, wide differential in terms of what causes nasal obstruction, so we'll try to break this down kind of one step at a time, and uh, we'll mainly be focusing on adults today, but can you tell us uh, when someone presents with nasal obstruction, what are the primary symptoms they're presenting with? Yeah, and I, and I think before we get um, too deep into those symptoms, I just want to mention that we'll try to do a, a good job today of talking about uh, a thorough uh, work up and evaluation of this problem and touch on treatment, but really kind of focus in on the adult patient and how we think about uh, the problem of nasal area obstruction. The first thing in regards to symptoms that I'll mention is I find it very important to really get the patient to be specific with you in their symptom description. For instance, we have a lot of patients who may come in and say, you know, doc, I'm coming to see you because I have nasal congestion. And it's difficult to know what congestion translates to uh, from what they're thinking compared to what we're thinking. There's been uh, some data that shows that when ENTs hear the word congestion, we think nasal blockage. But when patients say congestion, they actually mean a feeling of pressure or mucus production. So again, I think it's really important to talk to them specifically about the the symptoms that they're experiencing and have them describe that to you uh, in, in detail. And uh, what are some specific questions that you're asking them regarding their symptomatology that helps you tease out what might be going on? So when, when they tell me that it's, it's a blockage or an obstruction symptom, I like to focus on a couple things. Uh, I often ask them, of course, how long it's been there and how significant or severe it is. If it's a mild problem that's been there for a long time, that may lead you down a certain pathway in the differential versus a severe problem that's unilateral, that's come on quickly over two or three months, that may lead you down a different uh, aspect of your differential. I also asked about uh, if it's worse during a specific time of the day, for instance, at nighttime or when they lie down versus during the daytime. We, of course, talk about the laterality and left and right. Uh, We talk a little about if they have any associated symptoms like rhinorrhea or drainage or other sleep difficulties uh, in the evening time. And we, of course, ask the straightforward questions like, history of known allergies or a history of nasal trauma. And I'll also highlight for them a little bit uh, the normal nasal cycle in which uh, one side of the turbinates tends to be engorged every few hours throughout the day and may switch sides. And for some patients that may be interpreted as nasal obstruction, when in fact it may may be more uh, symbolic of the natural nasal cycle. And what are some risk factors you might ask about? So a few of them I've mentioned already, certainly folks with a history of allergic rhinitis uh, do have a a pretty high incidence of having nasal obstruction symptoms. In other podcasts, we've discussed chronic rhinosinusitis in folks with that condition or recurrent sinusitis also are, of course, uh, at risk for having nasal obstruction symptoms. We also think about things like uh, nasal trauma or um, history of uh, broken nose can be uh, leading on a pathway to think about things like septal deviation or, or a narrow internal nasal valve. And the last one that I'll also mention is pregnancy. And there is a condition uh, of nasal obstruction that tends to occur during pregnancy. It's thought to be due to um, the estrogen effects during pregnancy. And that can cause um, some vasodilation changes in the nose 
uh, and engorgement of the mucosa, especially of the inferior turbinates. And as you're evaluating this patient, you've kind of gone through your HPI and touched on symptoms and risk factors, but there's some other aspects that are probably important. What are you paying attention to in terms of medications that patients might be taking and other aspects of their past medical history? So I think that the medication history is important in this particular issue, uh, both from a a previous treatment standpoint, as well as things that may uh, help to induce um, congestion in some scenarios. I certainly ask them about a history of use of nasal decongestants. Uh, this can be a, a, you know, a number of them are out there on the market. They can either be uh, a topical spray, uh, things like Afrin or uh, neosinephrine, or um, pills that can be ingested as well that are, are decongestants. I also talk about previous use of uh, nasal steroids, uh, sprays and rinses they've used in the past and the technique in which they've used them. Then we also talk about things that, that have maybe a history of helping to induce uh, some nasal uh, congestion or nasal blockage symptoms. And those can be things like oral contraceptives, which again, likely due to the estrogen component can induce uh, some blockage symptoms. Uh, certain blood pressure medicines have a history of this, as well as a few uh, antidepressant or benzodiazepine uh, medications. And in terms of past medical history, what are some uh, kind of red flags or things that might be contributing to nasal obstruction that... Uh might make you think more outside the box? Yeah, great, great question. We've already discussed some more routine things like chronic rhinosinusitis or allergic rhinitis, but other things can uh, can pique your interest a little bit. Things like uh, rheumatologic diseases. So we think about uh, GPA or Wegener's disease or uh, even a little bit less common um, things like sarcoidosis or EGPA um, are, are things to think about as far as uh, outside the box conditions that can also cause nasal obstruction. Nasal polyposis, we've, we've discussed a bit already, and that can certainly cause blockage. In certain things, maybe in a kid, uh, cystic fibrosis, or an adult, AERD can contribute to those uh, particular issues. And then, of course, we always ask about things like um, a, a history of nasal surgery, uh, as we mentioned earlier, that is going to lead you down uh, a certain thought process when you evaluate these patients. And taking a quick detour, can you talk to us about a few questions or things you might consider specifically for the pediatric population with nasal obstruction? Absolutely. And I'll just mention a few things because they're, they're probably high yield um, in, in many regards from a pediatric standpoint when talking about nasal obstruction. I, I think it's important to always ask if that condition that the patient ex- is experiencing, usually to, to the mom or the dad, has been present since birth or developed after birth. It's also important to ask if they had trouble with nursing or bottle feeding. It may make you think about things like coenal atresia. Um, of course, that's bilateral. That's more of an uh, it, uh, acute problem, if you will. But if it's just unilateral or, or uh, a partial membranous coenal atresia, they may still have normal growth and development, but have those uh, classic history of it being present since birth and having trouble with nursing and bottle feeding. And then, of course, we always ask about things like foreign body or purulent drainage, which may make you think that uh, kiddo has uh, put something like a little Lego in their nose that uh, may need to be removed. And kind of heading back towards the adult side, we've done the full history. Can you walk us through what you are looking for in physical exam when you evaluate someone with nasal obstruction? Sure. There's a, a couple of things that are that are important. Uh, with every new patient that I see, uh, I perform a complete head and neck examination to look for any other associated or even non-associated things that may be playing a role in their, in their current issue or even outside of that, to be honest with you. But specifically looking at uh, patients with nasal obstruction, I think it's important to look at the external part of their nose. Uh, if they've had previous trauma or even just, just congenitally, they could have very pinched 
internasal valves or shifted nasal bones, which can make things uh, just narrow from an external standpoint. A standard uh, speculum exam with a headlight is important, especially to assess that caudal septum uh, in the area of the external nasal valve. And then I typically do uh, an endoscopic exam and all of my patients look more posteriorly in areas that I can't see well uh, with my nasal speculum exam and have a thorough examination of the middle meatus, sphenoethmoidal recess uh, in those areas as well. There is a, um, a maneuver that's been described through the years called a caudal maneuver. And that's an external maneuver where you um, sort of gently pull on the cheek next to the external nasal valve laterally. And the thought is that that may help you to diagnose uh, valve issues in a patient if they have improvement with that maneuver. What I'll tell you is that anybody, including myself, who, you know, I don't really have a nasal breathing problem. If I pull laterally on my cheek, it makes me feel like I'm breathing better. So that's, that's not a very specific test, um, I wouldn't say. There is a modified version of that called the modified caudal maneuver. And that's where you place a small instrument like an ear curette, for instance, just inside of the internal nasal valve near the upper lateral cartilage and gently lift that uh, laterally. And that can also help you to better diagnose an internal nasal valve uh, issue uh, in those patients. Again, almost anybody will have some improvement with it, but if the patient tells you it's an aha moment and you've noticed there's a high deflection in that area or a narrowness in that internal nasal valve, it may make you think that perhaps this is more of a valve issue than a routine septal issue or otherwise. And moving on to pathophysiology, uh, could you describe to us how you think about the etiologies of nasal obstruction and then maybe give us some, you know, relevant anatomy that might be helpful as we consider this? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I talk about uh, this, you know, sort of differentiation of pathophysiology, both uh, to my residents and trainees, as well as to the patients themselves to help them to understand things. And we'll get into the differential diagnosis in a little bit. And there can be things outside of this, but just as, as a basic outline, I tend to think of nasal obstruction from both a mucosal standpoint and then a structural standpoint. And I think we'll start with the mucosal standpoint first. And this really refers to conditions that uh, cause edema in the lining of the nasal cavity and perhaps the sinuses as well, uh, which then narrow the, the nasal passageway and can contribute to a sensation of blockage uh, in these patients. Um, chronic rhinosinusitis or nasal polyposis can certainly play a role in this, in this regard. Um, and then other things that, that are more specific to the nasal cavity are also uh, big players here, and that's allergic rhinitis and non-allergic rhinitis. And these are conditions that can really cause edema or swelling in the lining of the nasal cavity mucosa, again, contributing to, to nasal blockage symptoms. Also something we think about from a mucosal standpoint is rhinitis metamucosa. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, I, I always ask these patients if they, if they have used a topical decongestant spray in the past. And with uh, prolonged use of this over time, you know, classically over three to five days, they can begin to get rebound congestion of their mucosa, uh, which can then cause symptoms of uh, blockage, even though they're using this medicine regularly. And the last thing I'll mention here is that uh, from a mucosal standpoint is the inferior turbinates do pay, play a big role uh, in nasal obstruction symptoms. These are important uh, structures, both for uh, humidifying and moisturizing uh, the air as you breathe it in, but they can also become engorged from a number of conditions. Uh, allergies, I've already mentioned to you a few times, but these are really controlled by uh, the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. So the parasympathetic system in general stimulates congestion uh, and sometimes increased nasal secretion production by 
causing vasodilation of the sinusoids within these turbinates. And in contrast, the sympathetic system provides a, a nice vasoconstriction of these, uh, which is why um, some of your decongestant sprays will actually work via vasoconstriction via this uh, sympathetic nervous system pathway. So those are a number of things I think about from a mucosal standpoint. Now, on the contrary, many folks also have structural issues in the nose that are playing a significant role in their nasal obstruction symptoms. And I, I think it's prudent to take a quick detour and just talk about anatomy for a little bit. That's not the overall point of this uh, podcast today, but it really plays, plays a vital role uh, in understanding these structural components. The first thing I'll mention is that the, the nasal septum is, is, of course, very important, and everyone, I'm, I'm sure, is quite familiar with that. And it's really made of, of three main components. So anteriorly, you have the, the quadrangular cartilage. And then posterior in your bony septum, you have uh, two bones that really make that up. And that's the inferior, inferior vomer and the more superior perpendicular plate of the ethmoid. And as we'll talk about in a little bit, there can be deviations throughout the septum in a number of these areas, uh, both cartilaginous or bony. The internal nasal valve has, has already been mentioned uh, before. And this is really, really important to understand from a nasal obstruction standpoint. The internal nasal valve is is an area in the, in the nose that's really bounded uh, medially by the nasal septum. And then laterally, it's really the piriform aperture or about the head of the inferior turbinate. And then more superiorly and laterally, it's bounded by uh, the caudal end of the upper lateral cartilage. And then finally, the nasal floor. And this is really important because uh, this internal nasal valve area is thought to account for up to half of the resistance in the nose. So it's the narrowest part of the nasal cavity and creates the most uh, in regards to nasal resistance. So even more slight uh, alterations in this internal valve area can cause significant symptoms for, for patients in regards to their nasal obstruction uh, symptoms. The external nasal valve also plays a role here. And the external valve is, is really the area between the, the ala more laterally and then the caudal septum, the columella <clears throat> more medially. And especially in older folks who have very weak cartilage or have had previous surgery, this can also be an area uh, of narrowing and collapse in folks who have obstructive symptoms. But when we talk about structural things, again, I think we focus uh, largely on those structures I just mentioned to you. Paying attention to deviations in the nasal septum and where they are are very important. You know, there can be simple spurs that are causing obstruction or slight deviations in the valve area. There's also folks who have trauma or other things, and they have their septum you know, completely on the other side of the nose, which of course is a, is a major, uh, major, major obstruction uh, uh, area for them. There can be also things to pay attention to, things like um, conchabulosa, which is an air cell in the middle turbinate, which can take up some space and cause blockage. And then of course, the one that's crossing both the boundary of the mucosa and the structural is the inferior turbinates. And we see some folks who have uh, very large, bulky inferior turbinates with a very large bony core, which is more of a structural reason than a simple uh, mucosal swelling for for their obstruction in regards to their inferior turbinates. So kind of a big question here, but what do you put on your differential diagnosis for someone with nasal obstruction? Yeah, great, great question. This is a, a pretty high yield area. And as we've alluded to already, the differential diagnosis is very wide in these patients. And you can, you know, pick your favorite mnemonic if you'd like to, to, to think about these things. I mentioned a few things from a congenital standpoint, and I'll, I'll mention those again. So uh, coenal atresia, there can be even deviated septum in kids. Um, there can be things like uh, nasal acromal duct cyst, which can cause problems in kids or foreign bodies, as I mentioned earlier. Infectious things uh, or inflammatory etiologies are, are common. So allergic rhinitis, chronic sinusitis, uh, rheumatologic conditions or turbinate hypertrophy, as we mentioned earlier. 
Uh, medications we talked about like uh, rhinitis metamucosa or estrogen or birth control pills can also contribute to things. Um, <clears throat> there are some uh, things that can be caused uh, from surgeons as well. So empty nose syndrome, which we'll get to in a little bit, uh, is something where the turbines have been resected and the patients feel like they have uh, nasal obstruction, even though their nose is is quite wide open. And again, we'll talk about that in a little bit. There can be things like you know, drug abuse, cocaine, where there's crusting and those kind of things in the nose. And then of course, a, a big one in this differential is also neoplasm. So a number of benign and malignant tumors can grow in the nose and cause symptoms of obstruction. And in many cases is actually the presenting symptom for those tumors. And we will cover uh, both benign and malignancy uh, tumors in other uh, podcasts that we're doing. And a couple more specific causes that I wanted to touch on today. Um, could you talk about empty nose syndrome? Sure. This is a, a really challenging condition uh, to treat in many regards. And it, it's a condition that is thought to have both a structural or a physical component, as well as a bit of a psychogenic component. And in some ways, I think it can be considered along the lines of conditions like fibromyalgia, where there is both a, a physical component as well as a psychogenic component to it. Empty nose syndrome patients uh, classically are those who have had uh, partial or complete inferior turbinate reductions, or excuse me, resections, if, if you will. In other words, the turbinate has been cut out. And the thought is that there are um, some sensory component to those inferior turbinates that may sense airflow. And even though when you look in the nose, there's a lot of room in their nose, the patients cannot feel that air passing by, and therefore they have symptoms of uh, blockage, congestion, or even in some cases, they, they consider suffocation or anxiety a component uh, of this condition as well. And also as, ha as a result of having their turbinates resected, uh, a lot of their moisturization is gone. So they may uh, complain of things like chronic dryness in the nose or crusting in the nose as well. And it really causes a lot of distress uh, for many of these patients. Historically, this has been a challenging condition to treat because there hasn't been a lot of great options for re rebuilding those turbinates, if you will, or, or restoring that moisturization component. Uh, Jay Karnayak, who's at Stanford, is doing a lot of great work in this area, and he's developed some uh, validated questionnaires for these patients and is even doing some uh, submucosal implants or uh, injections to try to restore that bulk of tissue, which can then uh, better allow them to feel the airflow and in some cases maybe even improve their uh, moisturization. But again, a, a, a condition typically associated with complete or partial inferoturbinate resection that was something that was done a long time ago versus the more typical submucosal reduction that we do nowadays. And moving on to workup, what is your next step after performing a good history and physical for folks with uh, nasal obstruction? Is imaging usually a part of your workup? Great question. And I think that this can become a little bit controversial. What I would tell you that the textbook answer is for routine nasal obstruction uh, after a physical exam and uh, um, a good history, imaging is not necessary for most routine cases of nasal obstruction most likely caused by things like septal deviation or big turbinates. However, it does play a, a good role if you're worried about other things. So if other symptoms suggest chronic rhinosinusitis, things like recurrent infections or hyposmia or facial pain and pressure, a CT scan can help to work up those things which are not uh, visible on physical examination. Um, other things can also uh, be important to image. So if you're worried about a tumor or a neoplasm, of course, that's important to image. Or again, in pediatrics, you might consider imaging for things like Quinolatresia or stenosis or, or those kind of things. But the textbook answer for routine 
standalone nasal obstruction with a more likely septal or infratermin source, imaging is not necessary for most patients. And can you tell us about acoustic rhinometry and rhinomanometry and where it fits in the workup? Great question. Uh, I would I would first start off by saying that these two investigative techniques are largely done from a research setting standpoint and are not part of uh, routine clinical care in, in most scenarios. Acoustic rhinometry is, is really a static technique that uses uh, acoustic waves to measure the cross-sectional area uh, within the nose. So again, that's a static thing looking at cross-sectional area to find the narrowest part of the nasal cavity, which is typically the internal uh, nasal valve area. Now, contrast that with uh, rhinomanometry, which is a more dynamic technique where you measure the respiratory airflow and resistance both at the front of the nose and at the back of the nose, which helps to identify the difference in those two and then a relative uh, difference in resistance patterns you see from the front of the nose to the back of the nose. So what else do you include in workup if imaging isn't required? These other studies are more for research. What other things are you thinking about when you're assessing people with nasal obstruction? So I think two things come to mind from a workup standpoint for most routine patients. And those really come down to allergy testing and then potentially a medication or an intervention trial. I'll touch on allergy testing first. Um, I don't think that every patient that walks in with nasal obstruction needs to get allergy tested. But if they have any uh, seasonal component or other things in their history that suggest allergies may play a role, I think it's certainly worthwhile to consider getting uh, allergy testing. Now, for most patients, um, their next step in workup is really a, a medication or an intervention trial. This can be a number of things. Uh, if they have not had previous therapeutic intervention from a topical steroid spray or rinse, then a routine trial of this for you know six to eight weeks is, is very appropriate. It's important to counsel them about the proper use of these and pointing them uh, laterally in those towards their ear instead of onto the nasal septum. And this can both be a therapeutic as well as a diagnostic trial uh, for many of these patients. If we think it's maybe more of an internal valve problem and want to work that up further, a trial of breathe right strips to be used uh, at nighttime or during day can also be a nice uh, both therapeutic and diagnostic trial uh, for these patients. Then lastly, if, if it's really an inferior turbinate uh, mucosal edema problem that I'm seeing, I may actually do an Afrin uh, trial. And that's that's where we use a topical decongestant spray like Afrin for about three days or so. And if they get significant relief with this, you may be able to replicate that with an inferior turbinate reduction. And again, I counsel them about rhinitis metamucosa, but from a uh, diagnostic trial, that's also a, a valuable thing to consider doing. So we've talked about history and physical, we've talked about our pathophysiology and the workup. So I wanted to next move on to treatment. Can you describe first what the medical therapeutic options are for nasal obstruction? Sure. The backbone of, of medical treatment of nasal obstruction is really topical steroids. They, this can be uh, delivered in a, in a number of ways. Uh, the classic ones that are out there are things like uh, fluticasone or mimetazone in a topical spray. They've been around for a number of years and can be quite effective uh, for most patients. Uh, things like fluticasone are, are actually available generic now over the counter, so they can be purchased by the patient. And as I've mentioned already, it's important to really counsel them about the proper use and technique of these sprays and the fact they don't work right away. So most of these sprays take at least 10 days to 14 days to really start working. So as opposed to decongestants, which work right away, they really need to stick to these topical steroid sprays to get benefit from them. Topical steroid rinses are also uh, very commonly utilized, more so for chronic rhinosinusitis, 
but can also play a role potentially in these nasal obstruction patients. And that's things like budesonide or mimetazone rinses delivered with a saline rinse. Um, and those are really the backbone of therapy for most of these patients. If an allergy component is there as well, things like azelastine can also be utilized, which is an antihistamine uh, topical spray. And then I'll also mention in this area uh, non-surgical options. So some patients don't want to or don't need to undergo surgery and then rather do things like, um, you know, use a breathe right strip at nighttime, or there's things like nasal cones that can be utilized to kind of dilate that external valve to help people sleep at night. And those are reasonable options for folks who, who don't under, want to undergo any uh, procedural interventions. And can you tell us about surgical options? Sure. And we won't get too deep in the weeds today with these options. I think we'll have some other uh, time dedicated to some of these things. But the, the most common things we end up doing for patients with nasal obstruction are septoplasty, uh, inferior turbinate outfracture or an inferior turbinate reduction, and then when needed, a conchobulosa resection. Now, there are many nuances to these things. Uh, and I'll first touch on septoplasty. Uh, a septoplasty operation is a relatively common outpatient operation in many ENT practices. It can either be done with a uh, nasal speculum or an endoscopic approach. And these are is really intended for more routine septal deviations that can be accessed through uh, typical incisions and options. The uh, lining is raised in a submucopericondrial and periosteal plane on one side. Uh, typically, an, an incision is carried out through the cartilage or bone on the other side and contralateral side is raised, and then those deviated portions of bone and cartilage are removed. It's important to leave a reasonable dorsal and caudal strut in order to allow for nasal support. And you can find these written uh, different measurements in various places, but about 1.5 centimeters is a pretty safe bet on what you need to leave behind in order to have adequate uh, support for the nasal tip. Now, I will also mention that not every septum is a quote-unquote routine septum, and each one is to be approached uh, very specifically and individually. If I have a patient who has a very significant uh, internal valve component to their septal deviation, like a high dorsal septal deviation, or folks who have a significant uh, caudal deviation, that very caudal aspect of the septum, I will have a low threshold to involve uh, one of my partners in facial plastic surgery who has expertise in uh, opening the nose or rebuilding or reinforcing these areas uh, when needed. And again, th those nuanced conversations I think are going to be had in another podcast uh, coming up. The next thing I'll mention is uh, the conchobulosa, and that's not present very commonly, but when it is, it can be helpful to, re to remove the lateral aspect of this in order to improve uh, the patient's uh, area in that middle medial space. And then finally, the inferior turbinates can either be simply outfractured, where the bone is sometimes in and then outfractured and pushed to the side, or a more formal submucosal inferior turbinate reduction. And this is a technique where an incision is carried out near the head of that inferior turbinate, and then a sub uh, mucosal dissection is performed, and then the underlying bone and the sinusoidus of blood flow, if you will, or that submucosal component can also be reduced with a small microdebreeder while leaving the outside uh, uh, aspect that's important for moisturization and sensation intact. So they simply have a nice uh, reduction in the size of their turbinates without resecting them. And I talk to patients about this and tell them it's similar to taking the stuffing out of a pillow, but leaving that nice uh, covering the pillow intact for functional reasons. And how do you counsel patients on outcomes and expectations and kind of what they should expect regarding their nasal obstruction when they're pursuing therapy? So I think there's a couple important things to talk about. Um, first of all, I always counsel these patients, even if we're undergoing an intervention for them, 
that the goal is to improve their symptoms. And it may never be perfect or exactly symmetric between the right and left sides. We're looking for overall improvement in their sensation of nasal airflow. No matter what we do surgically, there's always going to be that natural nasal cycle where there's some increased swelling from one side to the other a few times throughout the day. And that's going to be normal. And in many folks who have another reason for things like allergic rhinitis, they may need ongoing treatment medically for that uh, allergy component. And that may need to be long-term, even if they've had things like their septum straightened or their turbinates reduced. And how do you follow up with these patients? So for most of these patients, um, assuming they've had a, an operative intervention, we'll see them a few times postoperatively to make sure they're healing well. Then I may check again on them in about six months or a year just to ensure that their symptoms have stayed at bay and they've been doing well uh, for a more longer-term outcome. If they've done well through that time frame, then I'll usually release them back to their primary care doctor for longer-term management or back to their allergist for ongoing allergy management uh, for most of these patients. Well, Dr. Joby, I think we've had a great discussion about nasal obstruction. Before I move on to our summary, is there anything we haven't talked about that's worth mentioning? No, I, th I think we've done a, a you know hopefully a, a thorough job in talking about the the workup uh, and differential diagnosis in, in at least the the nuts and bolts of management of these patients. Um, I will mention it's it's really important to work with uh, doctors and other surgeons who have expertise in different areas. So in our practice here, we have a very low threshold to involve uh, our facial plastic surgery colleagues who have great expertise in again that caudal and dorsal uh, septal area, as well as our allergy colleagues as well who have a lot of expertise in managing uh, more challenging uh, allergy patients. Great. Well, I'll now move on to our summary. Uh, nasal obstruction is a common complaint that presents to many specialties and has uh, many different etiologies. A thorough history can help elucidate the etiology, which is necessary given the broad differential diagnosis. Physical exam should include nasal endoscopy when possible and carefully performing the caudal maneuver or modified caudal maneuver to further distinguish the cause of nasal obstruction. Workup can, can include allergy testing depending on symptoms. Sometimes a CT scan can evaluate structural abnormalities. And we did talk about acoustic rhinometry and rhinomanometry, which is typically reserved for research purposes. Treatment should be directed to the cause of the obstruction and oftentimes starts with medical therapy. Obstruction that's refractory to medical therapy can be addressed uh, through many different surgical options, including septoplasty, inferior turbinate reduction or outfracture, contrabullosa resection, and as Dr. Chobi alluded to, possible nasal valve correction. Patients often achieve satisfaction once the appropriate intervention is offered, though some might require ongoing medical therapy, depending on the etiology. Dr. Chobi, anything else you'd like to add? No, I appreciate the time, Jason. Thanks so much. Thanks. I'll now move on to the question asking portion of our time. As a reminder, I'll ask a question pause for a few seconds to give you some time to think about it or press pause yourself, and then uh, we'll give the answer. So the first question is, what should be performed on physical exam in the evaluation of nasal obstruction? As always, we should perform a complete history and physical exam, but more specifically, uh, the general exam should be ruling out any obvious signs of trauma or craniofacial abnormalities. And more specifically to the nose, we should evaluate the nasal valve using the modified caudal maneuver, and we should perform nasal endoscopy to evaluate the septum, inferior turbinates, possible presence of a conchablosa, and signs of inflammation and infection, as well as possible neoplasm. It is worthwhile performing endoscopy both before and after nasal decongestant is applied. For our next question, what is empty nose syndrome? 
As Dr. Chobi discussed, empty nose syndrome occurs in patients who have previously had sinus surgery with resection of their inferior turbinates. This creates a paradoxical sensation of nasal blockage despite an open pathway in the nasal cavity. And for our last question, what are the components of the internal nasal valve? When we talk about the internal nasal valve, medially, this is the nasal septum, laterally is the piriform aperture and the head of the inferior turbinate, superiorly is the caudal end of the upper lateral cartilage, and inferiorly is the nasal floor. And this is typically the narrowest part of the nasal cavity. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.